0: got a Bible with you tonight. Let's open them together to 1 Samuel again. 1 Samuel, and tonight we're going to look at 1 Samuel 21 and 1 Samuel 22. So that's one of the joys and challenges of uh, working through narrative passages in the Bible. You're typically dealing with with longer portions of Scripture. You're, You're capturing the story and the plot line in the story. That's how the Uh, the truth of the text is communicated. It's not through argument necessarily, but it's through the introduction of characters and um, uh, tensions that arise within the text and how uh, those things are are realized and uh, how how resolution comes about. And so a lot of times that means a bigger chunk of scripture. And tonight we're going to look at these two chapters. And last Wednesday, if you were with us, Uh, we looked at first samuel 18 through 20 and we kind of focused in on the relationships that were in david's life the relationship that he had with jonathan the relationship that he had uh, with michael and then the covenant relationship that was there between david uh and jonathan and and how it was a picture of david returning to that and god calling his people uh, to find peace in the covenant relationship that he extends to them and ultimately uh, we find that in the relationship that we have with Jesus Christ and the new covenant uh, that he has purchased by his blood. Well, as we get to chapter 21 and then chapter 22, uh, we, we really now begin to see David on the run. Uh, that was kind of happening in snippets in the chapters that we looked at last Wednesday. David was kind of moving a little bit from here to there. But now uh, the facade of Saul's rage against David has been removed. He's simply out to get him. And so David is on the run, and he's trying to avoid Saul. He's trying to preserve his life, and uh, it, it's, it's one hectic day after another. And I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of pretty familiar to me. <laughs> I don't think anybody's out to get me, per se, uh, at least not literally that I'm aware of. Um, but we do know that we have an enemy who walks about as a, a roaring prowling lion, seeking whom he may devour. Uh, David's story teaches us, if it teaches us anything, it reminds us that as uh, the people of God, um, that that we face an enemy, and that enemy is relentless. And even when we know God's favor, and even when we believe God has a a purpose and a direction, we're walking in in faith and on mission, uh, that enemy is still there. And the the attacks seemingly, they, they, they don't end. Well, that's what David is facing here in these two chapters. He is on the run. He's in the midst of a trial, and your trial tonight may not be one that you're having to run from, or is running you ragged, or running you hectic, or anything like that. Uh, but it's a trial nonetheless. Well, what we see happening in David's life, and what what David is encouraged by in our text tonight, hopefully, will be an encouragement to you. And, and there's four pieces of encouragement, four four ways. Uh, David is encouraged as he's trying to flee from Saul and avoid um, conflict and and Saul trying to take his life. So let's, I'm just going to read through the text. And as we read through it, I'll I'll draw these points out for us. And uh, hopefully we can make some application to our lives. So let's start 1 Samuel chapter 21. Then David came to Na'v to Elimelech, the priest. And Elimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Elimelech, the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Now let me just pause right here, kind of set the stage for us. So Jonathan has informed David at the end of chapter 20, yes, Saul is still out to get you. His intent is to kill you. Remember, they launched those arrows and uh, Jonathan gave the, the signal to his servant, uh, go a little bit further, go beyond. And that was the key phrase that David was listening for, to know that Saul still intended to do him harm. Uh, and they came together for kind of a last goodbye, if you will. And now David is on the run, and he comes to, to Nob, a priestly city, where the priest Elimelech uh, is serving. And it's interesting, in verse 1, the, the author of the text tells us that Elimelech came to meet David trembling. The priest was trembling. We're not exactly sure why. We could surmise a few things. Uh, perhaps he's trembling because he's received some indication of what's taking place between um, David and Saul. And now with David being before him, he can uh, assume that Saul is not far behind. And so he's about to get caught up in this conflict. Uh, That wouldn't be far from the case as we get to the end of chapter 22. Um, Perhaps he's also trembling because he, he knows that this is God's anointed king, Uh, In a sense, this is God's Messiah for his people that he has chosen at this particular time to lead, to deliver his people uh, from strife and conflict and and war. But nevertheless, he inquires, what are you doing here? Why are you alone? It just didn't seem right. And so David gives this answer. And it's not exactly what's taking place. David seems to be kind of... um, covering himself a little bit, maybe trying to cover for Elimelech, possibly. He doesn't come out and say, Saul is trying to get me, and uh, I need you to hide me, to help me. Uh, I, I'm looking for a hand. Can you do that? Um, and there's a lot of, you know, if you read a lot of commentaries on this particular part, uh, there's a lot of back and forth. Was David right to do this? Was David wrong to do this? Well, well, ultimately, let me just remind us that that's not the point of the passage, And what the Bible is giving us here is simply a description of what David did, not necessarily a prescription to do what David did. And it's always helpful to remember that when you're reading narrative portions of Scripture. Just because it's describing how something was done or said is not necessarily an affirmation of that. It's just how it went down. right? No different than how you tell a story of somebody doing something. And so perhaps I'm inclined to think that David is wanting to protect Elimelech the best that he can. So he, he kind of says, well, you know, I'm on this mission for the king and I'm going to meet some guys here. But do you have anything that you can give us to help us, you know, with kind of where we're at? And perhaps David is thinking that if I don't bring Saul into this, if I don't mention Saul, then that can, you know, help Elimelech um, r- remain out of the foray. Like If he is questioned, he can just simply say, well, yeah, David showed up here and he was on a mission for the king. That's all I know. I, nothing else. Uh, so it, it's possible that he was trying to, in some way, protect Elimelech in this moment. But nevertheless, he's looking for, uh, for some, some, some resources. Particularly, do you have any bread? What do you have? In verse 4, the priest answered David. He says, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. And if the young men have kept themselves from women, uh, and David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Wow. Wow. I think this is just an incredible thing that is happening here in David's life. David comes to the place where the priest Elimelech is ministering and serving, and he's looking for substance, he's looking for resource, he's looking for bread, and bread in this culture was uh, uh, an essential to life. You know, we, we take bread for granted, you know, it's just kind of there on the counter, and it's it moldy, and nobody eats the hill pieces, and it's just one of those things, right? But in this culture, at this time, if you didn't have bread, you didn't have life. I mean, that's just kind of the way it was. It was an essential. And so David is asking for something that is vital to him, to his men, as he's on this run, as he's trying to evade Saul, and trying to preserve his life. And I think in this moment, the Lord is reminding David of, of some incredible things because the supply that Elimelech gives is not just ordinary bread, but it's holy bread. It's the bread of the presence. This was the bread that sat on the, uh, the show table in uh, the, the outer courts, and it was a specifically designed bread uh, in how it was arranged. And there were 12 loaves there, and it spoke of the 12 tribes of Israel. And um, it was. Uh, made to kind of face each other. It was the bread of the presence. And it was a reminder to the people of God that He would meet with them face to face. And Elimelech says, This is what I can give you. This is what you can have. Now, the law explicitly prohibited anybody but the priest from eating this. And when we get to the New Testament, this is what Jesus uses to uh, rebuke and to rebut the Pharisees and their condemnation of His disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath. He says, Don't you remember what David did? That the Lord sustained him with the bread of the presence when he went to Elimelech. And so here, God supplies David in the midst of his running, in the midst of this trial, uh, in, in a, a, a just really incredible way. His, I think it was Del Raph Davis said it this way. The holy bread became David's daily bread. The holy bread became David's daily bread. what jesus taught us to pray right give us this day our daily bread and so the lord does that he gives this incredible provision to david not just of common bread but holy bread take this and that bread was again symbolic of the presence of god and i think it's a beautiful reminder that in the midst of our trials in the midst of our running in the, the 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 um, the hecticness of life and uh, the, the unending pace and the trial of, uh, that seemingly doesn't end, no matter what it may be, the Lord is with us in that. His presence is there. It's almost as if the Lord is reminding David, hey, I know you're on the run, but guess what? I'm, I'm running with you. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You can't get away from me. There's no place that you can go that I won't be there with you how encouraging is that god gives his presence to david even in the midst of this great trial that he's now entered into but in this gift of his presence there's also the gift of provision the bread would sustain david but the story kind of goes on because when we get to verse 8 david says to elimelech well you know um I, i don't have any spear or sword at hand either i'm not armed He says, I don't have my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, Well, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here wrapped up in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. Are you kidding me? (laughs) All we got is the sword of Goliath, David. I mean, that's... And I love David's response here. He says... There's none like that one. I think I'll take it. <laughs> I mean, isn't that, I mean, here is David trying to get away. He's left in a haste. He's concocted this story of trying to explain you why he has done that and why he doesn't have these things. He needs bread. And God says, okay, I'm not just going to give you any bread. I'm going to give you the bread of the presence. I'm going to give you this bread that has been set apart and sanctified, this bread that can remind you that I am with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. You can have that bread, David. And David says, well, you know what? I kind of need something to arm myself with. You got anything around here that can help? And he didn't say, well, we got a slingshot back here, although David was pretty good with that. He, he didn't say, I, you know, I got a pea shooter. He says, no, over here wrapped up in the corner, we got the sword of Goliath. <laughs> will that work? And David was like, absolutely. God's provision. It's absolutely incredible. Here at the very beginning, as David is beginning in this ongoing saga of trying to stay ahead of Saul, the Lord is reminding him, I am with you and I'm going to provide for you. I am with you and I'm going to provide for you. I'm with you and I'm going to provide for you. I'm with you and I'm going to provide for you. I don't know about you, but that's what I just need to be reminded of a, a whole lot of times in my life. I'm with you, and I'm going to provide for you. The trials don't stop. They just keep coming. I feel like I just keep running. But the good news is God says, I'm with you, and I'm going to provide for you. And even as we said in the prayer tonight, he is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think. He says, here's some holy bread, and here's your pretty good sword. Then, we come to verse 10. It says, David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. So, I want to help you, hopefully, to be better Bible readers. All right? Especially when you're reading narrative and especially when you're reading Old Testament. All right? So you've got to pay attention to how the story's flowing. You've got to pay attention to the characters that are introduced in the story, in the text. Pay attention to where you're going. Again, this is all God's holy inspired word. And so now in verse 10, we're told that David rose. He's leaving Nob. He's leaving the city of uh, the priestly administration. And he goes to Kish, the king of Gath. This is the stronghold of the Philistines. This is the king of the Philistines, all right? That's a head-scratcher, right? Why is David running to the king of the Philistines? Why is he going into the enemy's castle, if you will? In verse 11, we're told, The servants of the king of Kish, the king of Gath, said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? And listen to this, Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands. And David, his 10,000s, they knew the song that the women in Israel had been singing. Like it was on their iPhones too, right? They're listening to it. David's killed 10,000s, Saul just the thousands. But do you know those thousands, who they were? They were Philistines. And David shows up in the city of the Philistines before the Philistine king. And guess what he's got strapped on his side? the sword of Goliath. I mean, I don't think you just kind of hide that under a cloak, right? I mean, this guy was nine foot something tall, and we're told that he had a spearhead that weighed, you know, 25 pounds, and he had a beam on the spear that was like a weaver's shaft. You know, I don't think this guy had just a, you know, a pocket knife that he carried. I mean, this was a hefty piece of metal. David's not hiding that, so here he is showing up at the camp of the Philistines, showing up to the king, and all the king's guys are like, this is the dude, and look at what he's wearing. And we're going like, what? Are you kidding me? In verse 12, the text tells us that David took these words to heart. (laughs) They would realize what they were saying. They would realize they were like, oh, we know who you are. They, 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 they got to David. He, 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 he knew. And he was much afraid of kiss. the king of Gath. And then so verse 12, David puts on this ruse. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. David basically starts playing the role of a madman, a crazy man. He starts putting graffiti everywhere. He's, you know, walking kind of funny. He's drooling all over himself. He's just putting on this show. And I I love what the king of Gath said, verse 14. He says to his servants, Behold, would you look at this? You see this man is mad? Why have you brought him to me? And then listen to what he says in verse 15. Do I lack madmen? Let me, let me give you the modern day vernacular. All right, I'm surrounded by crazy people. Why are you bringing me another crazy person? That's what he says. He's like, "Wow, what? <laughs> this is not what I need right now. I don't care who he is. This is not what I need. I don't have time for this." He says, "You think this guy's coming to my house?" And then we get to chapter twenty-two. And we're just simply told David departed from there. That's an interesting interesting story. He walks into the city of the Philistines with the sword of Goliath, the giant champion Philistine that he slew. He realizes they're on to him. He can't find asylum. He can't find refuge. So he just plays the part of a madman. And the king says, I don't want anything to do with him. Now, again, this is a picture of God's provision. And David realized this, and David knows this. You say, well, how do we know that? Because when you go to the book of Psalms, I don't want you to do this with me. Go to Psalm 34, open to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. Now, when you read the Psalms, some of the Psalms, now I'm not talking about the italicized words or the bold words, especially if you're reading from the ESV. I'm not talking about where above Psalm 34 it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's there by the editors of the Bible. All right? That's their heading for this psalm. But underneath that, before you actually get to the first verse, you have the superscription of the psalm. If you're reading from the ESV, you'll see it's kind of in the different... Type font, uh, it's all caps. You see what I'm talking about there, if if you've got that? That That is part of inspired scripture. That is given to us from the author of the Psalms. And I want you to look at what it says. This is a Psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. So everything in Psalm 34 was given to David. It was a song in his heart, the song of reflection on the moment that we just read about at the end of 1 Samuel 21, when he walks into the city of Gath, wearing the sword of Goliath and stands before the king of the Philistines and acts like a madman. And listen to what David says, Psalm 34, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord, that the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. What did the author of 1 Samuel tell us? These words reached David's heart and he was afraid. The Lord delivered me. From all of my fears, those who look to him are radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord saved him out of all of his troubles. And the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Wow. David writes this in relation to what happened in the city of Gath. Here's a man who was fearing for his life. Here's a man who was on the run. Here's a man who was in the dead center of enemy-occupied territory, and yet God still gave him a song. Praise was still in his mouth. The Lord was with him. Go with me to Psalm 56. Same, same thing, the heading, the inspired heading. To the choirmaster, master, according to the dove on far off Terebis, a of David. I'll let you figure out what that means exactly. But here's what we do know. He wrote this when the Philistines seized him in Gath. Same thing. God didn't give him just one song in that season, but he gave him two songs. Psalm 56 comes out of David's heart from that situation. And listen to what he says in verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker opposes me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife, they lurk, they watch my steps, they have waited for my life. For their crime will they escape, in wrath Cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back. In the day when I call, this I know that God is for me. In the heart of the Philistine city, David said, I know this, God is for me. What did Paul say in Romans 8? The beautiful promises that he gives to us. If God is for us, who can be against us? David is just breaking out in praise. This beautiful reminder that God was with him, but God was also for him, even when he found himself surrounded by his enemies. Even when he was in the heart of the enemy's very own city. God can put a song in your heart anywhere. You can praise God in the midst of any trial. Because he is with you and he is for you. Then we get to chapter 22. Chapter 22. There's still a whole lot more good to come. David departs from there. The Lord sustained him, delivered him. And he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Verse 2, and everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. God gives David a community. Now he's not alone. He's as ragtag and as ragmuffin as they may be. He's got a group. He's got a people. He's not alone. We talked about this Sunday in Ecclesiastes, how important community is. Two is better than one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. God says, here's 400. Here's your family. The house of Jesse came and Uh, They were there with him. Perhaps they were fleeing because of their connection to David and trying to get away from Saul as well. It's not exactly known. Perhaps they just wanted to go and and check on David and make sure that he was okay. But nevertheless, in the midst of the trial, God said, here's some people. You don't have to walk through this alone. What a blessing and encouragement that is to know that God has given us a people as well, that he has given us a family of faith. He's given us brothers and sisters in Christ that we're not alone. Then, verse 3, David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now again, this is quite interesting. The Moabites weren't always in best relation to the Israelites. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, you find a lot of times there was strife and contention between the two, a lot of wrongdoing. So why in the world would David seemingly find favor from the king of the Moabites and allow his father and mother to stay under his protection, in his care, till he can figure out what God's going to do, how things are going to turn out, what the next step needs to be. And, And the king grants that. I think it's here that David was reminded of the providence of God. And the providence of God sometimes is something that, it's a thread that stretches a long ways into the future. I can't tell you with certainty, but I think it probably had to at least be understood that David was standing before the king of Moab as the king of Israel now, but he was a king of Israel who had Moabite blood that flowed in his veins. Because there was a woman one time named Naomi who went with her husband and her two sons into the far land of Moab because there was a famine in Bethlehem. And while they were in the far country of Moab her husband died, her two boys took wives there Orpah and Ruth, the two boys died, and Naomi says, I've got to get back. I've heard the Lord's visit his people. I've got to go back. And Orpah said, I, I'm not going, but Ruth said, I'm with you. Your people are going to be my people. I'm going where you go. And so this Moabite woman goes back to the land that God had given his people. And I love how the writer of Ruth says it. She just happened to find herself in the field of Boaz. The Greek literally says, her chance chanced. She just happened to be in the field of Boaz, who was a kinsman redeemer, who said, okay, I like you. Yeah, I'll do that. Absolutely. That works out real good. And she becomes his wife. They have a son, Obed. Obed has a son, Jesse. Jesse has a son, David. His great-great-grandmother was a Moabite woman. And now David is standing before a Moabite king, asking, would you take care of my mother and my father? Would you watch over them? Now, I I can't say with 100% certainty that this was what was playing out, but i got to believe, at least in part, it had to be known. With as much emphasis as was placed on lineage and genealogy in these cultures, that David said, there's Moabite blood in my veins. And so God had done something literally centuries before, generations prior, that now is paying dividends and offering blessings to David in this moment, the providence of God. Oh, I dare say we fail to realize what God may be doing in our lives today that will bless generations that we may never meet that will one day come. That's the God that he is. And then, verse 5, The prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold, depart, and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest at Herod. Here's this prophet Gad. Where did he come from? Where did he go? cotton Najo. But here's Gad. But what does Gad show up with for David? Here's a word from the Lord. Could you imagine how refreshing that must have been for David in this moment? Here's what the Lord says to you. Here's where the Lord wants you to go. God says, here's a word and here's the direction, go there. We can be encouraged as well. Because God has given us his word to lead, to guide, to direct our steps, no matter what trial we may be going through. The psalmist said, your word is a lamp unto my feet, a light into my path. It's there. What encouragement is there when we find our lives on the run? Well, God's providence and God's people and God's provision and God's presence, but God's word, his word is there to give direction, to imply and to impart Wisdom. God gave his word to his servant David. We get to verse 6, and things kind of take a dark turn. Saul re enters the picture again, and it's kind of here where we, we, we get a beautiful picture of the gospel. Saul, who is at this time still reigning as king, but he's not a life giving king, he's a life taking king. And he's heard that David had been discovered and those who were with him, and Saul. Uh, finds this out, and uh, they, they go out after him, and they come to Nob to Abimelech, and Saul has his men there. He also has this Edomite uh, who would kind of, um, kind of letting things in uh, about David, and kind of working uh, in, in uh, a conspiring way with Saul, Again, the Edomites, again, had been longtime enemies of the people of God. But anyways, we get to verse 11. The king sent to summon Abimelech the priest, the son of uh, Atiab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Atiab. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, and that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God of him, so that he has risen against me to lie and wait at this day? And Abimelech answered the king, and who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is this the day the first time that I am inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or all this house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die. Elimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. The servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. The king's guards were wiser than the king. Saul wanted the life of the priest, wanted the life of all of his family. They wouldn't act, but the Edomite Doeg would. Saul instructed him, you turn and strike the priest. And Noah, the Edomite, turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. It was a massacre. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Elimelech, the son of Atayah, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abathar told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord, And David said to Abathor, I knew on that day when Doeg, the Edomite, was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. But then listen to what David says. And here's the contrast between Saul and David. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Saul was a life-taking king. David was a life-giving king. There are many people, every person today is under the rule and reign of some king. For we are not our own. We all serve a master. And sadly, many today are serving masters who are life-taking kings. They're serving Saul's. And the greater son of David is there saying, come and be with me. Come and be with me, and you shall be in safekeeping. Come and be with me, and find rest for your souls. Come and be with me, and find life everlasting. This contrast of David and Saul continues to play out, but here it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of what the true king, the true son of David, ultimately will provide and be. One who will give life. To all who will come to him. And he's the one. Who is with us. And for us. Guiding. Directing. Shaping our lives in ways that we may not even yet understand. But doing it all. For the good of those. Who come to him. Let's pray. Father we thank you for your word tonight. God we. We. Pray that you would let us hide your word in our hearts, that it might shape us, conform us to the image of your Son. We pray that we would run to him, that we would draw close to him, that we would know that in Jesus there is safekeeping. And Father, we thank you for your presence that is always with us. We thank you for your faithful provision. Father, we thank you for your providence, your people. We thank you for your word, O Lord. And Father, I pray that as we walk through trials, as we feel like we are running for our lives, that we would be reminded of these glorious gifts that are ours. And ultimately, that we would run to you. Father, for these who are before me, I pray that you'd be with them. God, I pray their faith would be firm in Jesus. And Lord, if it's your will that we gather again this next Lord's Day. God, let us come eager and longing to gaze upon your glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.